Welcome to the Carbon Sense Podcast from El Soy Advisor. I'm your host, Jennifer Jones, Agronomy Manager for the Illinois Soybean Association. Today, we are discussing the science behind carbon with our expert guests, Dr. Emily Bruner and Dr. Jeff Dukes. Emily and Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. It's good to be here. Dr. Bruner has been a proponent of conservation agriculture for over a decade. As the Midwest Science Director for American Farmland Trust, her work focuses on identifying ways to accelerate adoption of soil health practices while simultaneously increasing the resiliency and productivity of Midwest farms. Dr. Dukes is a professor in Purdue's Departments of Forestry and Natural Resources and Biological Sciences. He holds the Belcher Chair for Environmental Sustainability in the College of Agriculture and directed the Purdue Climate Change Research Center from 2014 to 2021. Dr. Duke's research examines how plants and ecosystems respond to a changing environment, focusing on topics from invasive species to climate change. Much of his experimental work seeks to inform and improve climate models. So as we kick off this new Carbon Sense podcast series, we want to set the stage for all the carbon conversations we'll be having. Let's talk about the science behind carbon. So Jeff, uh, the first question I have for you is, why is carbon sequestration such a hot topic right now? Yeah, uh, in two words, climate change. Really, it's uh, we're we're seeing the the climate of the planet change um, faster and faster, and that's something we need to figure out how to stop. Um, and so, the you know the the driving force for the change in the climate is the buildup in heat trapping gases in the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide is the primary one. Methane is another important one. Um, and uh, you know the the thing is that that plants in the ground are are um, one part of that equation. They're they're one of the things that can pull carbon out of the atmosphere, and one of the ways we can sequester carbon and potentially slow down climate change. And so um, so people are trying to think of new ways to um, incentivize us to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, um, typically using plants, although there are other mechanisms for doing that too. Yeah, and so you mentioned um, carbon dioxide is one of those driving greenhouse gases. Um, could you just give us more of an overview of the carbon cycle? Absolutely. So for for millions and millions of years, um, we had uh, plants pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, taking that carbon dioxide and turning it into a solid, um, you know, into plant matter. Uh, and then decomposing over times and over time and, and microbes would would put that carbon back into the atmosphere as they exhaled it essentially and animals doing that too we do that too we eat eat plants and breathe out carbon dioxide goes back to the atmosphere and for for millions of years that process on land and in the oceans was basically balanced um, you know, for for the most part, and there are periods where it would go back and forth. But in particular, over the over the last um, many thousands of years, um, and, and you know, few million years even, it's been been pretty much balanced. The the rate at which carbon's been taken out of the atmosphere by living things, photosynthetic things, has been balanced by the rate at which it's gone back to the atmosphere. It, not entirely perfectly, but pretty well. But um, but there has been there have been periods in the earth where some of that carbon that's been captured by photosynthesis has gotten sort of trapped has gotten stored in different reservoirs underground and and those reservoirs we know some of them as fossil fuels as coal and oil 
um, and uh, and methane deposits in the in the ground. And basically, that that's all dead. Um, Un, well, that's dead, decomposed plants that have gotten trapped and processed into, you know, some other form. And what we've become really good at in the um, in the last 150 years or so is finding those deposits and burning them up as fast as possible. And so that takes all this carbon that's tens of millions of years old that's been trapped down there and would never see the light of day if it weren't for us, um, and sending it, you know, really quickly back into the atmosphere. And so we are, by burning fossil fuels largely, um, throwing the, the composition of the atmosphere out of balance. And, um, and so that is what's, what's leading to climate change. So, so this, this carbon cycle is, is basically just this exchange of carbon between the, the land surface and the atmosphere and between the ocean and the atmosphere. And there's a big role played by the ocean as well in the carbon cycle in terms of carbon dioxide dissolving into the ocean. And, and coming back out of it. But, um, but if you wanna think about it um, in terms of how it matters really for in short time periods and, and for sort of everyday life, it has to do with basically plants taking up carbon dioxide and, and then carbon dioxide um, going back to the atmosphere through decomposition. Awesome, thank you. That's a really great explanation. And it rolls right into the next question that we have for Emily. So Emily, um, why is agriculture being targeted for these carbon markets? Well, what I like when I think about carbon markets in general, I like to think about both supply and demand side. Um, and to kind of to set the context, you know, we have almost 400 million acres of cropland um, in the U.S. And so, you know, on the supply side, we have a huge opportunity to implement practices that increase soil carbon sequestration, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and improve water quality and build on farm resiliency. Um, and so, you know, on the demand side, we have a lot of companies that are seeking to reduce their carbon footprints to align with Paris Agreement goals. Um, and then they have, you know, time gaps involved with deploying available technologies for carbon reductions in other points along their supply chain. So, for instance, you know, in our consumer packaged good companies, usually over 80% of the carbon footprint from some of these companies is upstream in their supply chain. So as they're trying to figure out how they can come on board with new technologies, these kind of shovel ready, if you will, practices um, in the agricultural space provide a, a, a readily implementable way to achieve some of the carbon reduction goals that the corporations have set. Yeah, so those shovel-ready practices really play back into um, the role that plants play in the carbon cycle, as Jeff was talking about earlier, too. So, Jeff, I guess relating back to the plants, obviously, in ag, we're, we're in the business of growing plants. So um, could you go into a little bit more about the role that photosynthesis um, plays in the carbon cycle? Yeah, of course. So photosynthesis is how we turn, how we, how plants turn carbon dioxide in the air into a solid. It's called fixing carbon. It basically turns it into sugars and, and the plants use that and incorporate that into, um, into their structures and, um, and use it for a variety of, of reasons. So, I mean, it's, it's always mind boggling to me that plants are able to take this gas that we can't even see and turn it into this solid thing. And you see it on farm fields around Illinois and, and around the world and in the natural world as well as so you, you go from you know, a seed to some huge plant in a short period of time. And that's basically this 
well, half of half of the weight of that, the half of the dry weight of that is just um, this carbon that's been pulled out of the out of the thin air. Um, so it, it's I think it's an amazing process, and and um, of course it's you know combining with the carbon dioxide with with water and using the power of light and you know other nutrients from the soil, but it's it's pretty amazing. Um, and, and so that that is the the actual uptake point. That is where we transfer carbon out of the atmosphere um, into um, it, onto the land surface into solids. And and the plants, of course, then um, take that carbon. They they build their structures with it and. And then at some point they uh, they die and and they may or may not decompose quickly or they may get eaten um, and release that carbon back to the atmosphere. Um, or you know if you want to sequester carbon and and keep it in the soil, then well Emily was talking about shovel ready projects. So you know one of the things you need to do is maybe not shovel as much. Um, you need to figure out how do you keep that keep the microbes from from getting everything that they would want to uh, to be able to chew up all carbon in the soil so you need to figure out you know can we can we keep the soil intact and can we keep plants on the land surface pumping carbon down into the soil a lot of the carbon that gets taken up in photosynthesis is turned into actual plant matter but but there's also some of it that actually gets sent out just through the roots as, as variety of sugars and other compounds um, and exuded into the soil. And it's really that below ground carbon from the, from the plants and from the exudates and then from the microbes that are consuming them that, um, that allows some carbon buildup underneath the soil over time. And, and that below ground carbon will, will um, potentially, some of it, if you don't plow the soils, will stay there and will build up and will um, not only increase the fertility of your fields and give you better properties in terms of water infiltration and things like that, but um, but it will prevent that carbon from getting back to the atmosphere, and so it can can um, essentially offset some of the some of the climate change that's happening because of the releases of um, carbon dioxide from other processes. So that is a very long explanation of the roles that photosynthesis plays in the carbon cycle, but it's um, it's an amazing and important role. I mean, it really is. It's it's awesome to hear you describe that in more detail too. And you were really alluding to some of the practices that agriculture specifically can do to sequester carbon. Um, so Emily, can you kind of talk about that more in detail? What are some of the agricultural conservation practices that are being recommended to sequester carbon and that these different groups are looking at as we um, dive more into carbon market spaces? Yeah. And, you know, to Jeff's point of, you know, perhaps we, it's, I always use air quotes when I say shovel ready, right? Because you know one of the one of the top practices um, that we're looking at, right, is is reduced tillage and and essentially no tillage, right? And not only no tillage, but really continuous, long term no till. Um, so across cropping rotations on the same field, of course. And then you know we're looking at cover crops, which again, you know, to Jeff's point, is we're you know we're extending the growing season and we're we're continually covering. We're keeping the soil covered and then we're continuously providing that living root that's then helping to sequester and keep that carbon um, stabilized and or cycling within the soil and not being released. Um, but then there's also, and those are kind of the two, again, thinking of, you know, these readily implementable practices. We have a lot of technical understanding um, to help producers understand how they can make those specific management changes. And we have a lot of available acreages um, where we can expand the adoption of those practices, but there's many, many more 
um, practices that you know we can use to to sequester carbon. Um, so you know, in grazing lands, you know, whether we're talking about pasture management or improved rangeland planting, um, there's also you know. If we're looking at removing some of our more marginal crop acres um, and planting, you know, filter strips or field buffers, um, so there's there's a multitude of ways and and kind of specialized in different regions and for different production systems. And then there's also, um, you know, of course, um, nutrient efficiencies and and nutrient management and precision approaches to help not only get the timing better of how we apply some of the synthetic fertilizers, but also reduce how much um, we're applying as well because of the whole nitrous oxide component, right? To, to our overall carbon dioxide equivalent um, emissions. There's also, you know, thinking through, you know, some of the more kind of innovative approaches. There's, you know, application of biochar potentially. There's, you know, reducing our, um, reliance on some of those fossil fuel based fuels and going into some of you know solar energy and or um, you know bioenergy um, on the farm as well so there's a lot of, of different options um, based on kind of where individual producers are are able to make changes and implement some of these practices right yeah and some of those practices that you talked about like cover crops um, no tillage nutrient management, those are similar practices to what we see recommended in the Illinois Nutrient Loss Reduction Strategy. Um, and so we're wondering how could farmers enrolling in carbon markets also impact water quality? Yeah, so uh, the Illinois Nutrient Loss Reduction Strategy set you know, a goal um, back in 2015 with the original publication of you know, reducing the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus in Illinois waterways by 45%. And we've got a long way still to get there. Um, and one of the biggest ways that we can, that farmers in particular can, uh, can help with that is by implementing these practices. We know cover crops, for instance, are listed with a re nutrient reduction efficiency for both nitrogen and phosphorus at around 30%, right? Of course, that's gonna be at a field specific level, but we know that there's the opportunity there and the reduction capacity of these practices to help with that non-point source pollution of nutrients and also for our sediment as well, right? We know that, you know, cover crops and no tillage are also gonna keep that soil covered and keep it in place. And again, keep it out of our waterways. Um, and, you know, thinking in the market context in general, you know, buyers are aware of the potential co-benefits of these practices as well. Um, and so, you know, just in the 2021 ecosystem marketplace report it, on average, a credit, a just a standalone carbon credit would have, you know, one value, whereas a, a credit that actually quantified and, and somehow verified some of these co-benefits was almost double in its price. Um, and so it's important to keep in mind that it's not just, you know, carbon market opportunities that are available. There's also other ecosystem service markets that are available as well for biodiversity, water quality. Um, and then, also, we know that as we're implementing some of these practices and we're increasing soil health, there are economic gains outside of a market um, that are available to a farmer to help, you know, increase that, that soil health that's going to then in turn increase the nutrient cycling and match some of those nutrient needs up at the same time that the plant needs it. And so there's a potential there with or without a financial incentive payment for farmers um, to really capitalize on some of the co-benefits of implementing these practices. 
I love that point because sometimes when we are talking about carbon markets, it can just feel like a rabbit hole almost or just like tunnel vision. But what you're saying about how these practices really just are part of a grander picture and really have a lot of co-benefits. I think that's a great point to remember as we're thinking about this carbon market space too. On that point too, many farmers who have been implementing conservation practices for years, you know, before carbon markets have really become popular, have questions about receiving some of those credits. That period um, is referred to as a look back period. And I was wondering if you could explain that concept in more detail and why there are so many questions surrounding it. Well, uh, I'll, I'll try to do it briefly. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot going on in this space right now. We might need a, an entire other podcast to really dig in, but um, in kind of oversimplified terms, right? When we're, when we're generally marketing a carbon credit and or an offset, um, there are specific quality um, points associated with that offset. And so generally off a high quality carbon offset needs to have multiple different components around additionality, which means that that specific carbon credit would not have occurred without the payment. Um, then there's, of course, the verification component. There's the measurement component. Um, there's also what we, what we refer to as leakage, which means if, you know, if this particular activity would then somehow affect um, emissions on some, other, on some other side or in some other part of the project and making sure all of that is accounted for whatever what this change is that's generating credit. Um, and then, of course, there's the permanence aspect. Um, which means that whatever um, credit is occurring, that carbon is permanently stored. Um, and so all of these kind of quality criteria have been set in, in a different context. And so as we're moving into the ag space and what a high quality ag credit means, it's becoming very difficult and it's a kind of a moving target for a lot of the market developers and even kind of protocol and standard setting bodies to kind of almost redefine what some of these terms and conditions mean. Um, and so when we think about, you know, the quote unquote look back period, that's really based around the additionality component, um, which is that, you know, this A, that this is that this is new, quote unquote, and B, that this would not have occurred without payment. So multiple different um, market developers are trying to wrestle with what that means. So in some cases, they're, they're strictly setting their target for their particular carbon offering to only include new practices. In other cases, especially where we're seeing market developers who are quote unquote in setting within their own supply chain. So they're not necessarily offsetting in a completely different industry, but they're in setting within their own supply chain. In that situation, there's a little bit more flexibility for what counts as new. And so that's where sometimes a lot, what we're seeing right now is there, there's a little bit more flexibility in how long that practice change, you know, has occurred in the past and whether or not it has to be completely quote unquote new. Um, but the other factor here in that additionality component, right, is that some people are, are some of the standards are already saying that if, a, if you're in a certain region where there's already been a high adoption of this particular practice, then they're saying that that in that area where there's already a high level of adoption, that adoption of that specific practice wouldn't even be considered 
quote unquote additional because it likely would have occurred without the payment. So there's multiple layers here as these developers are trying to figure out um, how they're going to kind of play in this ag space. And what's really important and kind of what I talked about in the first question with thinking about the supply and the demand side is that there's just a lot more room for transparency on both sides as the markets are evolving. So that way, you know, we know that this market's going to continue. We know that the voluntary carbon market is going to continue to grow and there's going to be continued demand. But as we're in this price discovery phase, it's really important for the, the demand and end user buy, end user, uh, end buyer to understand what they're buying in the ag space and how it's been set. So that way they can continue to uh, engage and have that demand for some of these ag credits. And then of course, on the flip side with the farmers to understand exactly what it is they're selling and how that credit is actually being generated. And I think that as we move more towards that transparency, it'll be a lot easier for folks to kind of understand what counts and what doesn't. Yeah, thank you so much. Cause that, I know that's been a question that's come up with a lot of growers and it's good to hear that moving forward, it will hopefully become more clear as time goes on. So that's great to hear. And um, well, and I guess, and I can add, right, that, you know, some, some programs are specifically only paying for practices that have been adopted in the past. So there are opportunities. And then for a farmer, if they're thinking about, oh, well, I've been in, you know, a no-till production system for 20 years, I, I'm not available for credits. Well, there are likely other practice changes, right? Those other practices that we mentioned earlier in the podcast that could then make them, you know, available um, to enter into the market if they were interested in making some of those changes. So again, I think there's, there's a lot of flexibility right now. And would it be best for growers if they have questions about that to kind of just look at specific programs or maybe talk to like reps from specific groups? Would that be the best way to kind of figure out how each one is working? It really kind of depends. Um, I almost feel like farmers need to have a better understanding of some of the just general contracting terms and and marketing um, and credit generation vocabulary, because sometimes talking to a specific uh, market developer or broker, if you will, in the space, they're likely going to be talking about terms and conditions that are completely foreign to a farmer. And so potentially doing a little bit of homework. Um, we have some, we have some great resources at Illinois Sustainable Ag Partnership. And a lot of folks really trying to help kind of um, move us through this gap of, you know, who knows what about what, but it's, it's, I think if you really want to make a wise and informed decision, it's important to think about a lot of the different offerings and not just necessarily going to one or the other to ask questions, but have a general idea of what's available before you really start digging into some of the nitty gritty contract details. Awesome. Yeah, that's great advice. And yeah, Emily was a part of leading a great effort by the Illinois Sustainable Ag Partnership last year that looked at many of the different offerings currently on the market. So I would highly encourage listeners to go check out um, ilsustainableag.org for some of those resources. And so Jeff, as we kind of um, switch gears here, can you tell us a bit more about carbon sequestration initiatives in the past? So we've kind of been talking a little bit about where we are now, but we know things like the Chicago Climate Exchange occurred in the past. And I'm just wondering, 
why are these markets different and how? Yeah, um, and I'm not a historian of, of sort of past uh, sequestration initiatives, so I, um, I can't give you all the reasons, but I can say that one of the challenges that the Chicago Climate Exchange had in the past was basically a mismatch of supply and demand. They had a lot of people who could sell into that system. They had uh, people who weren't necessarily, or companies who weren't necessarily um, required to, to be doing a lot of offsetting, but they, they wanted to do it. But the, the um, if they were doing it, they, they were, I think, often pretty happy to sort of do direct deals themselves as opposed to buying on the on this open market. And you had so many people selling into the market and so few people interested in in buying that you uh, that the prices just uh, just dropped to practically nothing. You ended up with a ton of carbon being worth five cents or so um, on the exchange. And at that point, they pretty much just packed it in. They, it would have been, you know, it was set up to be a, a good resource in a, in a world where cap and trade was a big nationwide program, um, but, uh, and to sort of help prepare for that, but, but cap and trade never came into place as a, as a nationwide program. But now um, we have a, a variety of different things going on. I think for, for one thing, there's a lot more interest in voluntary markets than there used to be. There are a lot of companies that want to buy a lot of credits, uh, have a lot of offsetting to do, want to figure out how to do that. And we're still in sort of Wild West period of figuring out how to provide those, uh, I think, although these, you know, these markets are developing. But, um, but then we, we also have compliance markets like in California where, where there's actually a mandate that, that some companies have to offset a portion of their emissions. Um, with sort of approved credits. And so you see in Southern Illinois uh, mines where uh, they're being capped and methane's being burned essentially uh, to, to minimize their, their contributions to climate change. Um, and, and that those projects are funded by these, uh, these offsets from, from California. Here in Indiana, where, where I'm based, uh, a little bit north of us at, at Fair Oaks Farms and, and around there, you see a lot of um, livestock operations where they are basically capping the manure lagoons and taking the methane from those and burning it to generate electricity and to, to minimize the methane emissions. And that, that's also uh, subsidized by this, um, you know, California market. So we see, um, you know, more voluntary demand and, and now a compliance market as well that, that is uh, sort of contributing to um, needing to, to figure these markets out a little bit better than they had been in the past and, um, you know, contributing to, to demand and also, I think, causing a lot of people to scratch their heads and ask questions of the sort that, that Emily was discussing on, you know, what, is, what should really be rewarded in what cases, when are we concerned that, that rewarding a certain activity in one place is going to lead to changing behavior in other places that doesn't get us to be any better off than we used to be or, when are we rewarding things that would have been done anyway? Um, you know, there are a lot of questions still out there on, on what should get credits and what shouldn't. But I think that there is, in general, um, maybe more confidence now that whether it's driven by consumer demand or driven by government regulation, there's going to be uh, a lot of interest in um, offsetting our carbon emissions over the over the coming decades. Yeah, and Emily kind of alluded to the same point that it seems like this is not going to be going away anytime soon. So um, 
as we're talking about this, we've been talking a lot about ag, but you started to talk about, you know, um, mines down in Southern Illinois and just some other places where um, carbon is being discussed right now. So could you kind of talk about who else is in this carbon generation space? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, we burn fo fossil fuels for, for lots of different reasons, whether it's to generate electricity or to um, get us get ourselves from one place to another in, a, in an engine or um, to run a combine across a field or um, or to heat our heat our buildings or maybe cook our food. Um, so you know, there's lots of different, you know, lots of different reasons we're, we're generating carbon. Uh, when you think about the companies that are, um, you know, maybe the points of uh, the, the sources of this, I, I think first about um, electric companies and, and the generators. So, you know, whether it's a, a fossil fuel fired power plant, um, more and more of them are being fired by natural gas and not by coal, but those are huge sources of, uh, of emissions for, for electric, electricity generation. That's of course changing fast with um, renewable energy getting so cheap. Renewable energy is now, whether it's solar or wind, it's now cheaper than, than any other form of electricity we can generate in the US over the lifetime of those power plants. So we are seeing a rapid shift across the landscape, but still we've got a, you know, on the whole across the US we're, we're dominated by fossil uh, fuel power generation. The other things that are strong emitters besides uh, electricity, um, of course, transportation. We're we're seeing a shift, the beginnings of a shift towards electric vehicles. But right now, we're still basically burning gasoline and diesel in in most of our vehicles, um, and uh, and in our trains. Um, and so, the transportation sector is uh, is a huge user of uh, of oil primarily. Um, we we do have a decent amount of methane emissions coming from landfills. Um, those are a little bit challenging in some ways to to capture because they're not as concentrated as something like a manure lagoon um, or a, a municipal wastewater treatment plant. Uh, but those are other methane emitters. Um, so the, as I mentioned before, there's incentives now to um, to try to capture that methane. Um, use it for electricity generation, um, and and in some cases that uh, that's subsidized by uh, by offsets. In some cases, it just makes financial sense to do it just to be able to uh, to use the the power that you can generate um, from from the methane that you're that you're giving off. Um, and then you know, natural gas is a is still a huge um, source of fossil fuel uh, emissions as as well. Um, of course, burned, burned in electricity generation facilities, but also burned in, in our homes, in our furnaces, in our, in our stoves, um, in uh, lots of settings to, to um, heat buildings or heat water uh, that we use in our buildings. Um, so, you know, all of that is in the generation space. Some of it is regulated more than others of it. Um, the, typically, it's only the largest emitters that are, that are regulated that need to, um, Potentially purchase uh, purchase credits in some way. Often it's the the energy industry, um, and and actually one other source I should mention is um, is heavy industry. Of course, there's a there's a lot of fossil fuel generation associated with some forms of manufacturing, uh, with steel production, um, and and those are some of the sectors that are maybe a little trickier to figure out how do we, um, you know, how do we switch? How do we get away from from um, fossil fuel emissions associated with those 
with some of those activities. But but I think the technology is moving pretty fast in that space too, and um, and we're going to see some big shifts over the next few decades. Wow! So there is a lot of activity in the carbon space right now, and and ag sometimes it's it's very new for us here. So um, sometimes it can be overwhelming, but it, it's interesting to hear that we're not alone. There are lots of different sectors and industries uh, dealing with kind of trying to figure out carbon markets right now. And agriculture is a piece of the puzzle and um, it will be interesting moving forward to see um, how that all unfolds for us. So thank you so much, uh, both of you for joining us today, Jeff and Emily, we really appreciate having you as guests. It's been great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, thank you again. And today I was joined by Emily Bruner, Midwest Science Director for American Farmland Trust and Jeff Dukes, Professor at Purdue University. If you're interested in learning more about the science behind carbon and other soybean management resources, visit www.ilsoyadvisor.com. That's ilsoyadvisor.com to learn more. This has been the Carbon Sense Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any of the important carbon conversations to come. Thank you.